Before we begin, I want to uh, announce a new series that we'll be doing beginning on February 18th, and that'll take us through to the Easter period. It's almost here, Easter. Pretty weird. Uh, it's based on a book written by a friend of mine, friend of ours. A lot of people know him here. We had him, uh, had him here a few years ago. Brant Hansen is his name. The book is called Life is Hard, God is Good, Let's Dance. Experiencing Real Joy in a World Gone Mad. I, I read the book a few weeks ago and thought, everybody here has to read that book. And then I thought, I can't make everybody here read that book, but I can tell you about it. So that's what we're going to do for a few weeks. I think you'll get a lot out of it. It's really well done. If you are interested in buying the book, if you go to our website and click on the resources tab, it'll take you right to Amazon or you can buy the book. Um, you don't have to. You can come to the services and listen and you'll get everything that I think you should be able to get out of it, but it's worth reading. It's worth having on your own, so I wanted to give a little plug for that this morning as well. Got it, everybody? Good. I'm telling you, you'll love it. You'll really love it. You'll be blessed by it. Anyway, thank you all for being here. We are currently in part five of a six-part series, so next week's our last one, called Right in the Eye. And if you would, please plan on joining us next week as we wrap this series up. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's a little bit of a twist on the book of Judges. You will see why next week, so come back for that. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will jump right in. So let's all bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for giving us this opportunity to once again dig into your word, to dig into the Bible, to understand how you would have us live this life. So God, enlighten us, open our hearts and minds, allow us to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I often do, I'd like to start off with a little bit of a question. So today's question is this. What kind of person do you aspire to be? When people talk about you, and I know that we're not supposed to gossip, but we know that people always talk about each other right? So people are going to talk about you. And when they do so, what is it that you want them to say about you? It's really funny. We, we expend so many calories wringing our hands, worrying about what's going to happen to us in this life. Will I be healthy or will I fall ill? When you're a student, will I get the grade? Will I graduate? Will I get the job? Will I get the raise? Will my flight arrive safely? We do all these things. We worry about all these things, all while knowing that we have little to no control over any of them. Uh, a friend of mine was saying he was on an airplane. He was in row 23, seat B. And the lady next to him in seat A was freaking out because they hit some turbulence. And she was going mad. Maybe it was her first time flying. And she turned to, turned to my friend and she said, why aren't you panicking? Like, what's wrong with you? And he said, I can't fly the plane from here. And we can't fly the plane from where we are. And yet we worry about it. We spend so much time worrying about things we can't control. And we spend so little time, if any time, thinking about the thing that we do have control over. Because it's not our circumstances that we can control, but we can control how we respond to the circumstances that we face in life. How you respond is the thing that defines what kind of person you are. So what kind of person do you want to be? And now to follow up that question, here's another. 
What if you made it your mission to be an extraordinary person, an extraordinary person? Now, understand, when I say extraordinary, I'm not talking about your being extraordinary at something. You may be extraordinary at something. You may play an instrument. You may sing well. You may write well, whatever that is. But what if you decided just to be extraordinary? What if you decided to be an extraordinary neighbor? Or what if you decided to be an extraordinary friend? Or an extraordinary spouse? Or an extraordinary parent? Or an extraordinary son or daughter? What if you just made the decision that you're going to be extraordinary as an employee, no matter what you do for a living? What if you decided that you're going to be an extraordinary employer, if you have people working for you? Or what if you decided to be an extraordinary customer when you go into a store or any a drugstore or a grocery store, anywhere you go, what if you want to be the extraordinary customer? Or how about when you go to the doctor? What about being an extraordinary patient? That one is one of my favorite things to do. I always make a concerted effort to be the best patient that the doctor's office has ever seen. And I have to tell you that it becomes a real blessing when you walk into the doctor's office and the person sitting at the receptionist's desk sees you and breaks into a huge smile. Like, oh, thank goodness, it's just you. Because they know they're going to be encouraged and they're not going to be screamed at. Because I don't know whether you know this or not, a lot of our neighbors scream at people when they walk into doctor's offices. Did you know that? But what if you decide to be an extraordinary doer of whatever it is that you do throughout the day. You could actually do that. That's something you can actually pull off. It's, it's not that difficult. In fact, you could start off trying it. You could try it for just a week. So what, what if, whatever you do this coming week, what if before you do it, you ask yourself, what would an extraordinary person do in this situation? And in fact, if you were to fall asleep right now in this message, and, and I know some of you will, and, and I totally understand that, but I would ask that if you do that, just put this in your head, I would ask that this week you give it a try and see how it goes. All right, now think about this. How many opportunities do you get to live your life? Now, some here might answer that question differently than I'm going to tell you the answer. And if you answer this question differently, please see me after the service because we have to talk. Because the answer is only one, okay? You only get one. And given the fact that you only have one life to live, why wouldn't you want to do it extraordinarily? And wouldn't it be really cool if everybody was in the habit of asking themselves in every single situation, what would an extraordinary person do? In this situation, what if it was a, a competition between all the people in the world to see who's going to be the most extraordinary, who's going to be the best, coolest acting person around? Consider that. So now, why did I start like that this morning? I started like that this morning because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have already been called to be extraordinary. And I feel comfortable saying that because if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you believe. So if you don't know what you believe as a follower of Jesus, I'm about to tell you. You believe that God knows you and that God has a specific plan for your life. You believe that God knows your name 
and that God knows the number of hairs on your head. And if you shave your head, God knows the number of hair follicles on your head, whether they're currently occupied or not. And that God loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, God the Son, into the world to pay for your sins so that you can be in a relationship with God forever. You also believe that God finishes what he started always and that everything that happens ultimately happens for his glory and he's invited you to participate in the process. You believe that every day matters. You believe that one day you will present your life before your heavenly father and you'll say to him, how'd I do? And you'll listen for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And you believe that you and every person that you've ever met was made in the image of God and deserves to be treated extraordinarily because they've been made in the image of God. So as such, if you are a Jesus follower, it is incumbent upon you to consistently ask yourself, what do I do in this situation? What should I do if I'm truly extraordinary? Now, when I just laid all of that out, what you believe as a Jesus follower, did you feel a little bit of urgency? Like, uh-oh, I didn't know all that stuff. Did you find yourself thinking, huh, I never looked at it that way. God knows so much about me. God has done so much for me. I really do need to work on being more extraordinary, don't I? Well, if you felt that, you can relate to the whole vibe of the book of Judges. The book of Judges, just a quick review, is a book found in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible. It chronicles the history of ancient Israel from the time that they entered into the promised land for the next 300 years until God raised up King Saul, Israel's first human king. God had established the nation of Israel as a theocracy. That's a theocracy meant it is led by Theos by God, as a nation that would not need a human king because God served as their king. You see, God gave his people the law. That's what the Torah is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So God gave his people the law to follow, and he designed it so that his law could be administered by a series of judges, not kings, not rulers, judges. And if this was different from any approach to any other nation, in the, in the world at the time. Israel was created by God to reflect his glory. Israel was created by God so that the other nations would see how extraordinary they were, and then they would inquire about their God. That's what used to happen. Every culture, every group of people had their own God, and it was sort of this competition to see whose God was going to win, whose God was going to prevail. And the God of the Hebrews came along and said, no, no, I am the God. Watch me. This is the way you need to be. Israel was created by God to ultimately be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles. But when God's people entered the promised land after wandering around in the desert 40 years after being escaping from Egypt, they did the same exact thing that we all do. Instead of looking up to God for their cues as to how to live their lives, they looked around to the culture surrounding them. And so as they started building idols, they started worshiping these idols, and they started worshiping the Canaanite gods and the other pagan gods that the people around them were worshiping. 
And then what happened was, as we've seen for the last few weeks, every time they disobeyed the one true God, God would discipline them. And that began the cycles. Disobedience, and then disaster, and then deliverance, and then repeat seven times in the book of Judges. We just see over and over again these cycles repeating and repeating. All throughout the 300 or so years, God continued to raise up judges that would deliver his people. And one of those judges that God raised up was a judge named Gideon. Now, last week we looked at Samson. And if you missed that message, please go ahead and check it out if you would. Uh, Don't do it at work. It does get a little racy, let's say. But that wasn't the most favorable story. In fact, it was a rough story. It did end with a great lesson, but it was a rough story. Well, on the flip side, Gideon's story is a good one because Gideon was one of the few good judges. There were not a lot of good judges during the period of judges, but Gideon, absolutely the best of them all. Now, I'm going to share with you one story from Gideon's life. But before I do that, I want you to know that Gideon's entire story is really interesting, and I would recommend, if you have a few minutes this week, read the whole story of Gideon in your Old Testament. You can find it in Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. Well worth the read. Because the story of Gideon is an important one, and it's important because it is totally relatable. It's really hard to understand that a story that's more than 3,000 years old in a culture we can't even fathom in a place so far away is so relatable to us today. But Gideon believed in God, but was also very content to be nothing more than just an average person, just a regular guy. So God got a hold of Gideon, and he shook him out of his complacency. God essentially said to Gideon, Hey, you, pay attention. Have you forgotten that God's spirit rests on Israel and its people? Why don't you start acting as if you really know that? Now, with that as our introduction, here is the story. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 6 or just follow along on the screen. It starts off in a very familiar way if you've been here for the last few weeks. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. All right, who were the Midianites? Well, the Midianites were descendants of a person named Midian. See how that works? Okay, who was Midian? Midian was a son of Abraham. Yes, the Abraham. He was a son of Abraham and his wife Keturah. We know that because we keep reading in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. If you're having children, don't forget to consider some of these awesome children's names. Now, even though Midian and Isaac were cousins, for many generations, the descendants of Midian and the descendants of Isaac were bitter, bitter enemies. And during the period about which Judges 6 speaks, the Midianites had the advantage. They had the upper hand. So we go to verse 2 in Judges 6. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. All right, what does that even mean? Well, it means that during this time, the Midianites were so powerful, were so overwhelming, that the Israelites had to leave their homes. They couldn't even stay home anymore, so they lived in hideouts in the hills near their city, 
right? It was terrifying, and they just, they ran away. It was so bad that they couldn't even plant their crops to sustain themselves the way that they used to do it. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. What did they do? They camped out on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, Take a minute and just picture the symbolism, this swarm of locusts. You ever seen at least a swarm of locusts on television? You've seen at least it on television or on a movie? It's just overwhelming. It's a cloud. You can't see it. There's just so many locusts. It's terrifying. That's what, that's what is written here that the Midianites looked like. There were so many of them that people were just overwhelmed. So after seven years of famine and seven years of impoverishment, they cried out to God the God who set the rules that they actively had disobeyed. And when the nation of Israel rebelled against God and then repented and turned back to God, and that's the key, the repentance and the turning back, well, what did God do? God turned back to them the same way that God does for all of us. We go against God's rules all the time, but when we come with a repentant heart and say, help, God says, I'm right here. The God of mercy does not shield us from the consequences of our dumb decisions. God allows us to feel those consequences so that we'll learn from those consequences. But then the same God touches our lives and forgives us and restores us back to himself. And God has promised that he will do that as many times in our lives as we need him to because his mercy is unending. So the Israelites cried out to God and God sent Gideon. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Oprah, Orphrah, that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, let's take a beat and look at this. Normally, when you thresh wheat, as I understand it, as you might guess, I have personally never threshed a wheat or anything else for that matter in my life. Don't come from a long line of wheat threshers. But when you're threshing wheat, when you're outside in the middle of a wheat field, this is how you do it, is the wheat's been cut down. Now they have machines for all of this. But back in those days when the wheat had been cut down, you take that wheat, you go behind the people who cut it, and you toss it up in the air on a windy day, and the wind separates the wheat from the chaff, the stuff you can eat from the stuff you have to get rid of. The chaff blows away, and the good wheat kernels fall back to the ground. But because they were so terrified of the Midianites, and because he was such a mild, milquetoast kind of guy, when he set out to thresh the wheat, Gideon hid. So he hid in a wine press. Now, the wine press was either a big vat, you know, a big container, or it was in a hole or it was in a valley, or it was hidden away in a barn so that the Midianites wouldn't see him threshing the wheat. All right, so you get in the picture here. They're in hiding. The Jews are in hiding. The Midianites are swarming like locusts, but the Jews have to eat. So what do they do? They're going to thresh their wheat, but they're going to do it in a really weird way, like they're going to hide in a hole and just sort of toss it up and hope nobody sees it. So 
Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Feels a little sarcastic in a minute, doesn't it? Like, wait a minute, mighty warrior. Now, before we go on, some of us might be right here this morning. Maybe, maybe you've lost sight of who you are. Or maybe you've lost sight of what God wants you to do in your life. Or maybe you've forgotten all the times God has answered your prayers. Or you've forgotten how good God has been to you. So you've moved away from him. And you've fallen into the trap of looking to the world to guide you. And looking to the world to love you. And looking to the world to save you. But now that's not working out too well. And you're feeling that feeling in your heart that there's got to be a better way than that. And it's in that moment that God shows up and he says to you, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you hear that and you think, God, I I know you've noticed that I've been kind of absent lately. I know you've noticed I haven't consistently prayed or I haven't been around your people for a while. God, I am no mighty warrior right now. And so Gideon said exactly what we would be thinking. He said, Pardon me, my Lord, but if the Lord is with us, how do you explain all this mess? Why has all this happened to us? Not to tell you, this is a version of the question that people ask God that I hear more than any other question. God, if you're so good, why is there so much bad? God, if you're with me, then why does it feel like everything and everybody's against me? God, why can't I get a job? God, why can't I get ahead? God, why are my children so out of control? God, if you're so good, why is there so much bad in the world? Well, I have some good news for you. If you've ever asked that question, God's already answered it. And he answered it for Gideon 3,300 years ago. And it's often the same question that leads people back to a close relationship with God. We go to verse 13, continuing Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? That's what they kept saying to each other. Once they got out of Egypt and once they got into the promised land, they would always go back to, wait a minute, I know it's rough now, but didn't God rescue us from slavery? Didn't God rescue us from 400 years of bondage? Isn't God great? Don't you remember that? We've heard the stories of God's greatness, but people say, where is he now? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. In other words, Gideon was saying, I'm not a mighty warrior, and God's not a mighty God. And nothing is working out for me like I thought it would. I'm not sure I even believe anymore. But then, and here's the twist, verse 14, the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. It was as if God didn't acknowledge Gideon's doubts about himself at all. It's it's as if God didn't even notice that Gideon was currently trying to thresh wheat in a hole. And I imagine Gideon must have been thinking, Lord, are you even listening to me? I'm not a mighty warrior. Look at my life. God hasn't done anything for me in a very long while. I am not serving him in my life at all. Why would you call on me to do anything? anything, let alone trying to save Israel. But the angel replied on behalf of the Lord. Remember when you hear angel, angel just means messenger. The messenger of the Lord is replying on behalf of the Lord. Am I not sending you? 
This is where we Jews get this habit of answering every question with a question. God, why would you call me? Did, did you not hear me? Was I not clear? Am I not sending you? Now, I feel like that's all I would have needed to hear to climb up out of the wine press and obediently follow God. But that's not what happened with Gideon. Instead, Gideon answered, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? I'm just a regular guy. I'm a nobody. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my family. I'm the lowest person in my tribe. I come from a tiny, weak tribe. And I'm not even prominent among my tiny, weak tribe. I'm a nobody. But then you show up and you tell me I'm a mighty warrior. God, are you sure you got the right guy? You know, when Amazon gives you your neighbor's package and it happens like at least once every other week, are you sure you got the right delivery? Are you sure you got the right guy? But what comes next is nothing short of miraculous. So picture it, Gideon, the guy who's hiding in a hole, hiding from his enemies because he thought of himself as small and insignificant and incapable because he thought of himself as an insignificant member of an insignificant tribe in an insignificant place. He was about to see himself in the way that God saw him. And when he did, it changed the entire trajectory of his life. God told Gideon, the guy who no one ever noticed, the guy who barely noticed himself, the guy who was at best just an average man living an average life, he was just a guy that was trying real hard not to get killed by his enemies when he was out doing his chores, something that would change everything happened. God told Gideon, Gideon, you can do what I've called you to do because... I will be with you. Whenever a follower of Jesus internalizes that fact, the fact that God is with us, whenever you can actually own that, lean into it, make it your life, everything changes. I've seen this happen in people's lives so many times. Over the years, I've seen so many people who'd once been so down and so overwhelmed and so scared that they've nearly given up on ever trying to do anything significant for God's kingdom. I've seen people go from utter defeat to triumphant victory once they came to know, once they came to realize the truth that God is indeed with them. I've seen them become some of God's most powerful and effective warriors. Once Jesus's people truly come to understand that God is real and he not only knows them, but he is for them, they become spiritual superstars. Abused women become mentors and encouragers for other women. Abandoned men become loving and caring and effective fathers and they raise strong, resilient, kind and caring children. Timid students who would never say a thing become inspirational leaders and help guide their peers on their, on their own relationships with Jesus. Older folks find a new purpose in life and a new energy to reach their communities. Workaholics become massively generous supporters of God's work right here in our ecclesia. Whenever someone comes to understand that God stands behind his people and imbues his people with his power and his resources and then shows his people his purpose for their lives, everything changes. From that moment on, 
they know that they can live an extraordinary life because they belong to God. Now, as Paul told the believers in Philippi, this is now in the New Testament, after Paul had experienced all this hardship, Paul really, go ahead and read Philippians. Philippians, we call Philippians God's book of joy because the word joy in four chapters is just repeated over and over and over and over again. But we all know this verse. Paul said this after experiencing all that trauma, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So the Lord said to Gideon, I will be with you. And you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. I will be with you, Gideon. So now the question is, are you with me? And this is why this series is so important. Because you have the freedom to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it. You can live the rest of your life doing what is right in your own eyes. And then you'll be like everybody else. But if you do that, you'll miss the opportunity to be the extraordinary you that God has created you to be. This was a pivotal moment. This was a defining moment in Gideon's life. The Lord was saying to Gideon, what are you going to do with what I just told you? Are you going to believe me when I'm telling you that I am with you? Are you going to act like a person who is confident that I am with you? And guys, this is exactly what God is asking you. And so the question becomes, are you willing to act like a person who is confident that God is with you and God is for you and then to live your life and make all your decisions based on that confidence? This is a game changer here. 1,300 years later, a Jewish man would write something to the believers in Rome. At that time in history, Rome was not a safe place for Jesus' followers. At that time in history, Rome was led by an emperor named Nero. He was a man who loathed all Christians. He was a man who would ultimately be responsible for the deaths of the apostles Peter and Paul. But before Nero did him in, Paul wrote this to the believers in Rome, and Paul wrote this for us as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the same thing that God said to Gideon. The angel of the Lord told Gideon, Gideon, I know you don't think of yourself as a mighty warrior, but Gideon, God sees you differently. Gideon, God wants you to abandon the way that you've always seen yourself and lean into the way that God sees you. God is with you and God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? That makes you, Gideon, extraordinary. So why wouldn't you always, every single day, wake up asking God the question, in light of my personal relationship with you, God, what would you have me do today as an extraordinary person? Now, Paul was well aware that when he was saying that, he was talking to persecuted believers in Rome, and they had the right to be skeptical. Nero was doing his level best to eliminate all of them, and by that I mean kill all of them. He had to make sure that these people never believed that they were extraordinary because of their relationship with God. And the situation that the people were in did nothing to stop Nero. Nero just kept coming after him over and over and over again. So Paul added to his pronouncement this, and this is important. 
verse 32. But he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all the things? So do you know how you can get up every day and know that God is for you? I can tell you it's not by focusing on whoever your Midianites are. It's not by focusing on your culture. It's not by focusing on how things are currently going with your job or with your love life or with your discipline issues with your kids or with your bank account or with your health or with your anxiety. It's not by focusing on any of your struggles. You can wake up every day with confidence in the fact that God loves you and God is with you and God is for you because 2,000 years ago, God allowed his one and only son, his beloved son, to die on that cross to pay the price for your sin. That's how you can know just how valuable you are to God. So the apostle Paul was telling you, you are so valuable to God that he not only placed his image upon you, he not only put his Holy Spirit inside of you, he not only gave you life, but he equated you with the price of his own son. So now it's on you to wake up every single day and live a life worthy of that kind of value. Live an extraordinary life. Now, do you remember last week's message? That was a rough message. But now that you've heard the story of Gideon, think about last week's message in this light. You are too valuable to God to let anyone mistreat you. And others are too valuable to God for you to mistreat them. As one of God's people, you are extraordinary. Do not forget that fact. And so how would an extraordinary child of God live out the day that is set before you, knowing that God found you to be extraordinary, so extraordinary that he gave his only son for you so you could have eternal life? So God is saying to each one of you, hey, mighty warrior, I've got something for you to do with your life. Now stop looking around to see how the world is doing things and stop focusing on your struggles. I am with you and I am for you. So what are you going to do about it? The story of Gideon ends like this. Gideon was terrified, but he was determined to answer God's call and deliver his people from the Midianites. So he went out at night when no one would see him and he destroyed the altar to Baal that his own father had built. And he cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Once he understood that God was with him, Gideon began to step into the extraordinary life that God had called him to. Gideon was starting to understand it. My son's pastor in North Carolina says it this way. He says, it's dangerous to think more highly of yourself than you ought, but it's equally dangerous to think less of yourself than God does. See, this is not a message about trying to get you to be good. This is a message about trying to challenge you to become extraordinary. This isn't a message about keeping you out of trouble. This is a message about you reaching your full God-given potential. This is a message about waking up every day and asking yourself the question, what would an extraordinary person do? Or more importantly, what would, let me read it to you, what would an extraordinary version of you do? 
What would you do? What would you do if you had all that confidence, if you were confident that God was with you, in you, and for you? Because that is the life that you've been invited to as a follower of Jesus. That was the destiny that the nation of Israel had been invited to. That was the destiny that Samson and Gideon were invited to. Now, Samson threw his destiny away because he couldn't keep his eyes off the world around him. But Gideon stepped into his destiny, and God used him to do extraordinary things. And that's my prayer for everyone, for all of our Hammock Street community. God, would you open our eyes to see through your eyes and to see ourselves the way you see us. God, would you help us to know that you are with us and for us and in us. And God, would you then empower us to see ourselves in that way in every single thing we do. Would you, Lord, help us to become extraordinary in every aspect of our lives? Because if that becomes a habit in your life, and if that becomes the lens through which you make all of your decisions, then you will become the extraordinary you that our Heavenly Father designed and called you to be. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you please raise our vision from our ordinary lives above what everybody else is doing and the way everybody else is doing it? And would you please, as one of the psalmists say, open the eyes of our heart. God, we know as Paul wrote and told us, we want you to enlighten our hearts and enlighten our minds so that we can catch just a glimpse of how you see us. And then, God, would you please give us the courage to step into it and to live our lives that way every day. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, who loved us so much that he willingly gave his life on our behalf. And all of God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen.